I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode three. This is a very, very special episode for two reasons. The first is, this is the second anniversary episode of Ask Viv. Roughly two years ago, I decided to take this very unexpected and precious journey into creating this project. And as I always say it was something that just began as a way to respond to readers and entertain some general curiosities that you all had about my thoughts on culture and life and society. But what it's come to mean is indescribable. I mean, we have covered so, so much ground collectively, you and I. And never did I imagine sitting in that little apartment on 126th and Linux would this span so many countries and thousands of listeners and to say grateful is too big of an understatement. I mean, it leaves me ineloquent. So thank you. And the second reason that this is such a special episode is that this episode is about sex, not the psychology of desire, not romance, not love, just sex, bodies. And I think that this is such a critical and interesting conversation to have. And the reason why I wanted it to be the second anniversary episode is because so many of the conversations that we've had about psychology and romance and environmentalism and artistry and everything else, they've been very abstract, very immaterial, very ontological, very high level meta. And so much of this journey for so many people that have been here since the beginning has been wondering how do I apply these curiosities and thoughts and high level feelings and questions about my spirit and who I am as a person into practical reality. And I find that I don't really address things like sex and food and spending very often. And it's not because I don't find these things urgent and interesting, but because they're actually harder (laughs) for me to talk about than these ideas of the soul and the spirit and art and society. They have much greater implications, especially when you're talking about being somebody that gives guidance or advice, a virtuoso when it comes to thinking. But two years in, it's time. It's beyond time. And so this episode is about sex. But when I really think about where to begin that conversation, I wanted this to be a very different kind of dialogue than the ones that you so often see in our current cultural dialectic. So many of the conversations that we have now are about consent. And these last two years, three years living in this Me Too era began a conversation from the idea of consent. And consent is critical, obviously. Consent is critical to conversations about sex. But something that we have not collectively admitted, or at least we haven't even begun to scratch the surface about, is the fact that so many of our sexual experiences, women in particular, can be violating, and it's not really an issue of consent at all. I mean, it can be yes from start to finish, and still you walk away feeling like you've lost something, or feeling less than whole, or feeling more apprehensive to have more sex. 
And it's a conversation that we don't have because it's so nuanced. And so I want to discuss today, begin this conversation about sex with a different, more subtle, understated C word, compromise. I want to talk about compromise because I feel like the issue with not just sex, but romance, which I talk about often, is that we begin our sexual histories from a place of compromise. And I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think that it's something that is truly missing from a collective conversation about sex. I ask most women why they lose their virginities the first time that they have sex. It's not typically because they're desiring to have sex. I mean, for me, I was terrified of having sex because I associated the loss of virginity with some kind of pain. I, I kind of had just tapped into this idea that it was going to hurt or it was going to be uncomfortable, that there was never a really right time to go there, that it was gonna be not good. And so if you've never had sex, it tends to be that your hormonal drive does not even desire to have penetrative sex until you've already had it. Meaning that before you have it, you have to make a mental decision to have it, not really necessarily a hormonal one. And so this is tied to this notion of compromise because so many of the reason that we engage in sex in the first place is tied to this initial transaction in which we want something from somebody else. So for many young girls, it's that you have this boy that's in your ear, heterosexual women, of course, and they're convincing you that they love you, that they want you, that you're the most important person, central thing in their universe, and you so want to be wanted. And this is really, it's not with hormones, but it's this first initial desire to be desired you want to be wanted this is oftentimes in like an awkward sort of and i'm talking about teenagers this is in this awkward phase where you don't really feel desirable you are just getting an awareness that you even have a body because so much up until this point has you just been kind of feeling like a blob filled with organs but this is the first time that you really want to feel wanted and you're starting to wonder what is this thing called love And for so many women, that initial conversation is one of psychology and it is one of emotion, not necessarily a bodily inclination of just teenage hormone. And so you begin this initial compromise by saying, I would like to be wanted. I would like to be loved. And you use sex the first time you have it as a token in exchange for that desire, that acknowledgement, that love. And this begins a sexual history that for many people, many women will not stop or be altered. This idea of using sex to transact in order to achieve a feeling of being wanted or secure or desired until their 40s, 50s, if it ever stops at all. I mean, this is really serious because you're not talking about a one-off thing. You're talking about the beginning of a decision that's made that is a lot of times fully consensual. Yes, from beginning to end, we don't actually know what it feels like to feel good when it comes to sex because that is a secondary or tertiary concern. It's not urgent. What we're concerned with is the aftermath of what sex can give to us. And now in this 
extremely self-commodifying society that we have with Instagram and the hypersexualization of yada yada yada. You have women owning this idea that not only do we transact using sex, but that this is actually a source of empowerment and that we should use sex to transact in order to achieve not just feeling wanted, not just feeling quote unquote loved, but actually transact for financial security. I mean, let's be honest. And in a time when women are increasingly the breadwinners of society, the more educated of society, the more financially secure in society, especially black women, we find that we are demanding more in this transaction than we ever had because no longer is it enough to feel desired, to feel loved, to feel wanted, but we need to feel like we're actually receiving something in exchange for sex. It's not good. It's not good. It has to be such a careful conversation because we're living in a quote unquote sex positive society in which people are much more open about talking about sex. And whether you like it or not, you're going to be consuming somebody else's sexual trauma, even if you have no desire to, whether you're reading about it on a timeline or seeing it in some very graphic scene in a random television show about teenagers, you're going to see sex and Funny enough, as we raise price and the cost of this transaction, we raise the stakes of this compromise, thinking that we are valuing our bodies more, we actually are devaluing the best parts of sex, which are pleasure, desire, and mutual exchange. And so this is an episode that's about complicating that conversation about compromise and how before you start having sex or whether you are just taking a turn in your relationship to sex if you've been having it your whole life. Because for me, I found that the only way to healthily re-engage with sex that was no longer from a place of compromise was to stop having it. Why do I say that? Rather than embracing this idea of sex positivity and that the best way to discover and attach ourselves to this notion of sexual liberation or autonomy was to have a bunch of sex with strangers um, and just kind of kink out, my idea instead was to stop having sex and to establish a relationship with my body in which I knew my body in and out, and I'm talking health-wise, therapy, reassessing my relationship to sexual trauma, really understanding what I have put my body through over the course of two audio decades in order to understand what I was actually giving away in thinking I was just transacting for something. Whenever you go into your bedroom with somebody else needing something other than pleasure, fun, good sex, you're always moving from a place of compromise, always. And that's something that we really don't tell people is that if you're going into a bedroom thinking I'm going to give away a sexual act for money or for love even, or some kind of security, anything beyond looking for sex, oftentimes, oftentimes you are going to feel compromised and consequently feel violated. Unless you really go in looking to achieve, I mean, just a very explicit transaction, i.e. prostitution, 
or sex work, which is very hard work. It tends to be that if you just go in with these secret intentions and these ulterior motives that have nothing to do with sex itself, if you are seeking, you're gonna have a hard time. I'm not being, I don't think excessive, extreme to say that this is most women, most times they're having sex, period. Most women intersex from a place of compromise. So it's no mystery to me why so many of the stories, the sexual histories of women, when they're told truly that begins with some kind of violation, then enters into a history of compromise, consensual or not, and is overall fairly bleak. And the reason why this hurts me and saddens me is because that's not the way that it has to be. And so when you stop having sex for however long that means to you, for me, that was this year, a real span of celibacy in which I could understand what it was I really needed, what it was I really desired, what was the criteria by which I was choosing sexual partners from the onset of when I began to have sex to now, when I began to look critically at that, I began to understand that if I could provision myself in other areas of my life with a sense of fullness, with a sense of self-awareness, with a sense of value that was not transactional but spiritual, then I could go back into the bedroom with a different criteria that was not transactional, but instead was sensual, was about pleasure and desire and an emotional mutual exchange, instead about a need that needed to be filled. And that's where the rest of these episodes, 25 lovely, wonderful episodes over the course of two years, begin to intersect with what's real. It's where what we feel comes at a crossroad to what's real. I began to understand that if I could understand myself, if I was not such a mystery to myself, which is really what Ask Viv is all about, becoming less of a mystery to ourselves, then I can begin to make more conscious decisions based on an even more important word, choice. I could begin to make choices that were informed by freedom and excitement and a longing that wasn't attached to sorrow or making future decisions that were not so tethered to my past violations and that in that I could one which is my hope for y'all have better sex period that's like (laughs) a big deal and two reclaim this power that had felt so lost and tragic because so many of the stories I see about sex end in tragedy. And that's the real, real mystery. Why do 90% of the stories that we talk about concerning sex end in tragedy? If we're living in this simultaneous sex positive era, why are y'all both having bad sex to whatever end and still end up in that therapy chair talking about all of your issues? How can we progress in both the way that we make our choices and the way that we set intentions in having sex that both does not incur shame from what we've done or what we're doing, but really find out what's special about this very, very human activity of engaging with another person sexually. What if it was just better? 
and uncompromising. And where does that start? That's where we start. It starts right here. And so I'm going to get into these questions because I know that's your favorite part. Dear Viv, what are your thoughts on virginity and keeping it? Let me tell you something about myself. So I grew up, I came of age, I'd say, in the hood. And this is a critical fact when it comes to talking about sex and virginity. Because the concept of virginity is this concept that within women there is something sacred. That the body is inherently sacred. And virginity essentially functions as a barrier between a sacred, holy body and a fleshly, evil world. And that that barrier should be removed only through marriage because through marrying a man in the sight of God, you can create what is essentially a holy venue within the bedroom in which the world will never intervene because your husband is now a barrier between yourself and the world and you belong to him. Let's just say that's like kind of like a summary of the history of the concept of the sanctity of virginity in the world, okay? When you grow up in the ghetto, one, as a black person, there is nothing sacred about your body, nothing. You're not a sacred being in any way, really. And there's no barrier between you and the world. When I was 15 years old, I lost my virginity. I was 15. I used to walk into the locker room in high school and I would see girls 14, 15, 16 years old, tatted up. I mean, tattoos everywhere. Gang tattoos, kisses of their mother or their sister or their lover, whatever. Stripes, stars, tears, tatted up. By the time you were 15, you would have your ass beat once or twice. I mean, you know, up against the pavement, cracked ribs, broken noses, bloodied lips. We had been there. If you were a black male, by the time you were 15, you had been slammed up against one or two police cars, at least. Handcuffs too tight. I mean, let me paint you a picture. By the time I was 15, two jobs. Two jobs. Um, working in radio, working in a retail store. 15, lugging boxes. 10 boxes of clothes and hangers, cleaning floors and cleaning mirrors, hands and knees getting grout and gum from underneath a movie theater seat. I mean, pay attention to this visual. We were in the world. Our bodies were always in the world. There's not this sacred barrier of suburbia. I mean, I was midnight, 16 years old, on the way home on my second bus to work. I was in the world. I've been in the world for a long time now. And so when I lost my virginity, it was not this idea that I was taking this holy, sanctified being and violating myself by placing myself into the world. I had already been unprotected. The only girls whose virginity was any kind of sacred is if they had some parents that made sure to be hyper-concerned with whether or not these girls were having sex. And when I say that, I literally mean like Mexican Catholic girls at my school were basically the only ones if they were not wealthier and white and don't even get me started because those were like the freakiest ones. I was in the world, so I lost my virginity at 15. It was not that kind of conversation. I wasn't having that internal dialogue that many people who considered themselves innocent at 15 were privileged to have because I was neither sacred to myself and I was not innocent because innocence is a privilege that's typically 
not allotted to black children past the age of 12. I was in the world. And this matters because I was just trying to figure out what sex meant. It was already developed by that age. I had hips, I had breasts, you know, long hair, long eyelashes, big brown eyes. And I was down this, walking down the street and I seemed to have belonged sexually to every man that looked at me. It didn't matter if I had never been in private quarters with another boy for five or 10 minutes because I was already receiving those kind of stares that I know y'all are familiar with and those comments and the vulgarity of things that I had no imagination of, really. So having sex was not this monumental compromising decision it was as simple as I had a boyfriend two years my senior at the time and we went there and that was it why I'm lucky when it came to losing my virginity was that it happened in a bed which I know that's not the case for a lot of y'all and it makes a world of difference I did truly love that person and it wasn't violating it was fully consensual I was awkward as all hell I don't really know if there's a way to lose your virginity that's not awkward. I mean, maybe somewhere in the world you cut a hole into a sheet and douse rose water and say Hail Mary three times and it's not fucking uncomfortable, but it was it was tender and it was nice. It was like an Aaliyah song, you know, it's a teenage love affair. It was not, it wasn't bad, but I have to explain to you all the context in which I grew up and where I was living as to say there was never gonna be a right time to get into the world. What would I have said, 21? You know, when would I have been ready to place myself into the world when I had been thrust in the world from the age of 13 on? There was never a time in which I had felt like I had fully belonged to myself. And if I was to wait until that day, most women would be waiting their whole lives. Most women would be waiting their whole lives, which is why I say that I was a lucky one because it was safe, comfortable with somebody that I trusted and it was consensual. And that is as horrifying as this is as an indictment of society. That is a good loss of your virginity compared to most people. You understand? So that's that's me. But here's the caveat. Listen up. I was too young to be having sex. I was too young to be having sex. And how do I know I was too young? How do you know when you shouldn't be having sex? And this is gonna shock some of y'all because some of y'all are 30, 40, 50 years old and maybe this will really make you reevaluate your relationship to sex. I had no awareness of my body at 15. I was only beginning to start a conversation with my body. Up until this point, as I stated before, I had felt like, a box lugging around organs with this inclination to sleep, piss, eat. I remember very clearly the first moment in which I had an awareness of my body. I was 14 years old, Miss Travick's modern dance class. And I'll never forget this day. My tight little leotard and tights on, barefoot. She turned off all the lights at the end of class. She told us everybody lay on the floor. We all laid on the floor. Close your eyes, she says. We all close our eyes. She plays this soft, sultry music. It's dark, but there's like this beam of light flowing in through the dance room onto this wooden floor. And she says, now I want you to just isolate feeling, to feel the parts of the body that she had named. And she said, 
I want you to start with the tops of your ears. And I'm thinking, what? She said, yeah, just just stop and take a real time to feel the tops of your ears. And then she moved to our earlobes, the cleft of our lip, our nostrils, the temples of our forehead. And slowly, as she was moving through these different parts, fingertips, our knuckles, our knees, our ankles, our pelvis, I began this sense of awareness and connection that I was not just this vessel. I was all of these parts comprising this whole and that each part had to be attended to somewhat, had to be acknowledged. I began to care for these parts and I began to develop what was the beginning of a lifelong relationship to my body and dance gave me that. And I was no longer afraid of my body because I found that when we began African dance, for example, people were so afraid to move their hips because so many of us, our first, our first interaction with our body is sex. And that's a terrible introduction to have to your body because one, that means that your relationship to your body is an eternal conversation between you and somebody else. And this is why you see rampant instances of domestic violence, why you see this sense of codependency and ownership of your body by somebody else because so many people begin their relationships to their bodies in relationship to somebody else. And not only do we begin our relationship to our bodies through somebody else, but the first relationship that most of us have to our bodies is pain. We become accustomed to an awareness of our body through pain. I'll give you an example. I don't know if any of you all ever have gotten a paper cut on your knuckle. I mean, it hurts like a bitch. It really, really hurts. It sucks, okay? You have no awareness that you even have a knuckle. 99% of the time, you are literally this object running around and yeah, basically laboring in the world. And you have no real awareness to your body until something doesn't work. Until you have this cut, this scrape on your knuckle and then you're like, oh fuck. And you get this hyper awareness to that part of your body because of pain. And this is so much of that conversation about compromise is that we begin our relationship to our bodies in Western society from a point of compromise. We don't pay attention to our bodies until they're breaking down. So many people, the first time that we understand our bodies in nudity is when we are in front of somebody else naked. And this is a real issue, that deep sense of internalized shame towards nudity that a lot of women have. Why is this so relevant to sex? Beyond the obvious reasons of connecting to your body so that you can actually be good at sex. I mean, let's let the streets tell it. A lot of y'all frigid, unmoving, inflexible. Let's set that aside for a second. You have no idea what it means to actually feel pleasure if you have no relationship to your body. You only have an acute awareness of what it means to feel pain. And so, like I said, you begin your sexual history from a point of discomfort in losing your virginity, in feeling placed in the hands of somebody else for the first time, often somebody who is, who is as incapable of handling you as you yourself are. But there is no explicit point that you are going to understand pleasure unless you take that journey on your own. And I wish somebody would tell people that and that somebody would have told me that. Not so fun fact. I lost my virginity at 15. I had my first orgasm at 20. I mean, let's get really real. 
I had no idea what an actual climax felt like. Le petit mort. That's what the French call it, little death. I had no idea what it even meant to climax. And I had been having consistent sex with multiple partners for five years of my life. And all of a sudden, when, I, when that came about, which the first time that I had an orgasm was through a vibrator, mind you, I now had a different criteria for sex altogether because I understood that I had needs that were not being met. And I began this conversation where I said, wait, why was I having sex? <laughs> And I had to really look back and it, it incurred the sense of shame and real violation and frustration when I realized that for every partner that I had had, that I had provided this ultimate pleasure for, I was, re I was being shortchanged in exchange and they did not care at all. I had not even begun to engage with partners yet who actually valued my pleasure. But this came because I didn't have a fortified relationship to my body and so I was too young I was too young and I say this to say a lot of you have got to stop having sex until you have a healthy relationship with your body because you create this unequal power dynamic in which you're standing in front of somebody else who you're expecting to teach you about your body and what makes you feel good completely relying on their experiences which are often, like I said, as ineffective as your own. And then you're expecting them to somehow, which I know this is a lot of y'all because of your codependent relationships, you're expecting them to undo the sexual trauma of partners in the past because you think this is a Drew Barrymore movie. You're gonna have a hard time. I'm not getting into a bed with a man who I'm expecting to teach me about my body when I stopped to relax, relate, release. I began to have this real frank conversation with myself about my complicity in my own compromise. And it began as a tale between me and the world at 15. But all these years later, it's become a different story because I know myself and knowledge is power. Dear Viv, can sex ever be devoid of emotion? Of course sex can be devoid of emotion. In fact, I would say that a lot of people, especially in the age that we are living in now, of the devaluation of any kind of sanctity regarding sex and hypersexualization, self-commodification, sex is often devoid of emotion. But that's not really what your question is. Your question is, can sex be devoid of consequence? I find that you all, when you ask me things like, can sex be devoid of emotion? Yes, in fact, I find that the way that most men, given the nature of masculinity, when they have sex, it's as if they're using you as an object of masturbation purely for self-pleasure. And it's not really emotional at all. And you know how emotional it's not, because the minute that you're finished, they're just like, okay, when are you going home? But what you really are asking is, can sex be devoid of consequence? And the answer to that is absolutely not. This is something that cannot be overstated. So many of you, what we have done as a society that is extremely hedonistic, meaning that we have put the pride of life, the flesh of the eye, the lust of the heart, <laughs> to put it in biblical terms, we have put desire such a high price on desire, exalted desire to such an extent 
that so much of the messaging of this society is that you can have whatever you want as long as you can afford it with no repercussion. And this is not just sex. You sign up for Amazon Prime, you click buy, you can have this in one or two days, exactly on time, on your front doorstep. And you don't care where it comes from, who made it, the labor costs, the human toil, the emissions, the environmental impact, you just got it. That's what it is. Thanks, Amazon. No idea of consequence or repercussion. You want to eat and you want to eat at least three times a day. And you want at least two of those meals to include meat. And you don't want that to have any environmental repercussion. You don't want to gain any weight. You want to also be extremely fit with a waist that's smaller than your ass. And you don't want it to have any repercussions on your long-term health after a history of overeating, ridiculous intake of sugar, consumption of meat. You don't want any diabetes, heart disease, weight gain, anything. You want to go under the knife to achieve a perfect body. You want to get Botox. You want to transform yourself into your ideal perfect self, but you don't want that to cost any money. You don't want that to have to have maintenance and you don't want that to have any implications on your overall internal health either. What you are seeing, judgment aside, truly, is a society, puppeteers of marketing and advertising, putting in front of you a world in which you can purchase into pleasure with no consequence, permanent happiness with no repercussion. And I am here to pull back the mask to tell you that it's not real. It's not real. Sex and the pleasure of sex. Sex, God's gift to man, oh Lord, is never devoid of consequence. You always get tied up in unattached strings, ask anybody, STIs, which no need to stigmatize them, they happen, as a result of unprotected sex. Pregnancy, as a result of unprotected sex. Psychological and emotional trauma, as a result of sex. Complications of relationships, as a result of sex. I was young enough at one point to believe that you could have sex without any consequences. And this is something that, again, in the ghetto, this is especially sold to people because we live a fast life, because we die young. And because we die young, we are especially enticed by the idea of choice without consequence. The crimes that we commit, the violence that we enact upon others, are all an idea that we can do things which will produce no consequence except for gain and pleasure and glory and triumph. Biggest trick being played on poor people in particular at any given moment in any given society across the history of the world. Freedom from consequence is freedom from mortality. We never think that we're going to die, so we do whatever, never employing any kind of foresight. Sex will never be devoid of consequence. I remember at one point I was approached by this very, very beautiful gentleman. I mean, tall, dark, handsome, wealthy. I knew because he pulled up to the restaurant I was eating outside at in this beautiful black Porsche, told me he was an architect. I was with a friend at the time. She's probably laughing if she's listening to this. I say, are you married? He laughs and he says, yes, I am. He gives me his card. 
I take this card. I explain the situation later to another friend who asked me, am I going to see him? He says to me, this friend, what's the big deal? It's just sex. This is the state of society that we live in now. Adultery is no longer adultery because we're quote unquote secular. So it's as much as just a decision of do I desire to have sex with this man who is beautiful, is in all other ways my type other than his marital status. This man has a child, mind you, I know this, a job, a business, some et cetera, et cetera. Nothing in, nothing in the people that I'm discussing this decision with never does it cross anybody's mind. Yes, you engage with this man independently. It's discreet. It's fun. It's protected. You're on birth control. Okay. But never thinking this decision can hurt other people. Not even in one second of any of the conversations that I had about this man with any friend did they say, and what if this man gets emotionally attached to you and you have no desire to have a relationship with him? And what if his wife finds out and that literally permanently damages her trust in men, her literal marriage? What if the child finds out and the mother never finds out and begins to resent their father for the infidelity that he contracted against the mother. Because when you live in a hedonistic society that is devoid of consequence, you are never considering other people in any decision that you make. So of course you're going to buy fast fashion without thinking about the fact that it is constructed by the hands of a thousand Chinese children. Of course you are. Of course you're going to consume and consume and consume, never thinking about future generations. You're always going to make impulsive decisions based on desire because we've become a society that is always willing to compromise the other for the desire of the self and sex is a huge venue in which this occurs and when I had knowledge of the consequences that my actions had which is something that came as an adult which if you don't have this yet you also should not be having sex when I could bridge action to consequence using this thing called foresight of how my actions would affect not just myself and my health and my body, but other people as well. It no longer became a matter of, can I do this? Can I do that? But will I do this? Will I do that? And once you begin to contract and compile a list of things you just won't do, when it comes to sex especially, When you began to say, this is where I draw the line. Can I have sex devoid of emotion? Yes, I can. Will I have sex devoid of emotion? No, I will not. Am I literally enabled by money, power, societal hierarchy? Can I have sex with married men because I'm beautiful? Of course I can. Of course I can. Will I? Will I? No, I will not. No, I will not. We have been tricked into thinking that youth is immortality, but ask any older person, youth is not immortality. Youth is the ability to make choices. It's the ability to make choices. Life is the ability to make choices. We have to make better choices based on a code that's not just set against our ability to do things. Because you find the minute you turn 18, what you are able to do is pretty much limitless in a society that enforces no moral code, only penal codes. 
And so the only things that we are unwilling to do are things that we feel we will be punished by through violence or incarceration. When in reality, if we set personal codes of ethics and personal codes of decision-making and really think about our value system and what we want and why we want it, which is where this conversation began, then we can make choices that are moving us towards freedom or at the very, very least, not doing collective harm. I would love to take this moment to, to plug having protective sex. Wrap it up. Dear Viv, do you have things like beauty marks, strawberry legs, etc.? If so, would you show them off? I'm going to be completely transparent and say that I had to look up what strawberry legs were before I recorded this episode. I have all types of freckles and beauty marks and dots and cellulite and stretch marks. And I can tell you that I pay very, very little attention to them. And I will tell you that this is for multiple reasons. One, it's the privilege of being considered beautiful. If I feel deeply insecure about myself at any given moment, if I really decide to indulge in the vanity that insecurity requires, then I walk out on the street for an hour and I'm going to receive enough feedback and attention and validation and affirmation and sexual remarks by the men just in my 12 block radius that it's going to dissipate rather quickly. And this really matters. I know that there are a lot of beautiful women that tend to be very, very hard on themselves, critiquing, self-hating. I'm not one of them. And let me tell you why. So much of the conversation surrounding body positivity comes from this idea of representation and that if there are more fat women or misshapen women or black women or whatever, on the cover of such and such magazine or in such and such advertisement that people might buy into the idea of themselves. They might buy back their own bodies and say this too is a desirable object. I grew up with a very, very beautiful mother. I mean, my mother was stunning, okay? That was my representation. My mother walked around naked all the time, sometimes to my dismay. We lived in a household of only women. I had two sisters. When I grew up, and my face began to develop its contours and my hips began to develop their curves and my feet began to grow and my eyes were getting wide. Who did I begin to look like when I looked into the mirror? I began to look like my mother. And so any kind of real self-hatred, if I was going to be hard on myself, criticize my looks or perceive myself as ugly, I could not do so without insulting the obvious and evident beauty of my mother. And it was in admiring her, who was such a realistic portrait of what I was bound to look like as I got older, who was such a picturesque vision of beauty in my mind, the words of tenderness and love and admiration and affection that I spoke to my mother as a child, watching her put on evening gowns before a gala, or going out to a dinner date was the language I began to use for myself when I was doing the same thing. And now when I don my evening gown or I go out with a suitor, then I can speak the words that I once thought to my about my mother as a child. And this is where a conversation of representation really, it takes a very interesting turn. My mother is a beautiful woman who did not shy away from conversations about sexuality. Four o'clock every day after school, in middle school watching the Oprah show and Dr. Oz was on talking about, take a mirror, put it in front of your vagina, like develop a sexual relationship with yourself. And I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old thinking, what the hell are they talking about? But these were things that 
even though subtle became ever pervasive in my mind as I got older, conversations that there was not any shame tied to them. So when I think about things that used to make me self-conscious, I have really big calves, for example, birthmarks, weight, all of these things that tend to be so self-damning that we used to be cruel to ourselves. I just think about my mother, who was the pinnacle of beauty in my eyes, growing up and I'm kind to myself always. I'm kind to myself. I have just now entered into an intense period of losing weight and getting extremely physically fit because I'm preparing to enter the world of television and it becomes extremely critical what you look like, not just for the perception of viewers, but for things like styling houses and fittings. And so my jean size, these things that I was kind of careless about before have become critical to my career. It is what it is. And as I reach these benchmarks, some days I feel like I fall short and I think, oh, you should be thinner in this part of your body. And, and then I think about other things. I immediately try to shift the conversation and think about the fact that I can bench press more pounds and I can do 30 push-ups without getting tired. These things that my body was physically incapable of doing. And I think about my internal strength and the longevity of my life that inshallah will be allotted by pursuing a more healthy lifestyle. And these things become immediately more important than these phenotypical traits that are ever changing, ever altering. One day I'll have wrinkles. One day I'll have deep set dark circles. If I'm anything like my mother and do not use adequate SPF, I will have more freckles. I will have fat after childbirth and lines and stretch marks and this story of my life will be told through my body. But I'm always kind to myself, become kinder to myself as I become more of a woman because it's expensive. I cannot really overstate how much people, the beauty industry profits off of our self-damning nature. And I find that the countries that I love to be in the most are where the most beautiful women are more full, are the laborers in society, women with strong legs and strong hands and long braided hair. I find that those are my favorite places in the world because that's what's beautiful to me. And because I've established my own ethics and code of beauty that's not informed by white, thin Western society, then I don't self-deprecate in the way that I find many women do. But let me tell you something else and bring this conversation full circle to talk about sex. Because I don't do these things, I don't acknowledge or approach or give the time of day to men who do not acknowledge how beautiful I am. And this is important because when I was younger, I could go into a bedroom with a man who I was questioning if he was really attracted or desired me. And I was going to use Again, this transaction, I was going to use sex as a mechanism to gauge how much this man truly desired me. Oh, honey, you're gonna have a hard time. I was having a hard time, okay? It's not a good idea because that puts so much power in the eye of the beholder because if you can have sex that's devoid of both pleasure and emotion, then a man who is not actually looking to affirm the way that he feels about me or affirm his desire for me, but is t just wanting to have some sex, which that's a lot of people, then I am going to give him that in exchange for this validation that by the time it's all over, in that four minutes, <laughs> let's be honest, I'm gonna be feeling ugly. I'm going to be feeling sad. I'm going to be feeling left without. I'm going to be feeling capital C compromised. So I make sure 
on that dance floor, at the dinner table, on the ride home, that it is abundantly and excessively clear that the person that I'm with likes the way that I look so that I am not in an extremely vulnerable and insecure place having this question of whether or not this person is staring at the fat on my arms or the birthmark on my lower back because it's not going to be good sex. If you're hyper aware of your body in anything but a tender and sensual good conversation, when you're about to engage in sex, you're gonna have bad sex. I can just tell you uh, from a performance point of view, it's gonna be subpar to say the least because when you are about to have sex, what you should be focused on is not blah, 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 what's wrong with me, but you should be enthralled and excited about whoever's in front of you. I, I love love how I look and it took me a long time to get that level of security means that I can spend the time that I have focusing on what is a top priority for me in sex which is mutual exchange and pleasure of making somebody else feel beautiful making somebody else feel strong and secure and safe doing my job to make sure that this is a mutual exchange in which I'm not just some kind of doll sitting there wanting to be thrown around and touched and validated. I don't go into sex for validation. You're gonna have a hard time. You're gonna have a hard time because if you don't get it, then you're gonna be, you know, in your thesis at a dissertation writing a 400 page psychological treatise on the state of trauma and validation in Western society. Like boring, okay? When you know you look good, when you feel good in your body, when you're healthy and sound of mind, when you're secure, you can go in kind of just like ready to have some good sex. That's really the entirety of this conversation has been about moving into a place in, in which we engage in sex for the right reasons. Validation is not a good reason. It's just not, it's just not. Do whatever you have to do to feel secure and feel beautiful in your own right as an individual, in your lonesome, in your bedroom. Have that fullness of life so that you're not going into sex desiring it from somebody else. Because let me tell you, especially if you're somebody that's having a bunch of casual sex or engaging with strangers, sometimes you're not gonna get it. And if you're having sex with cruel men, which a lot of us have had before, sometimes they're going to withhold it even if they think the world of you. Because that's just the name of the game baby and that's the risk that you take in having sex with people that you don't know oh i didn't realize it was gonna sound that way when i said it but that's the that's the cost of sex with strangers that's all the time that we have for today here's the thing about compromise that i find is really really the hardest part the hardest part about engaging in this life without compromise and that's concerning sex concerning work all the things that we always talk about me and my devotion to living a life with an unwillingness to compromise over basically anything means that you have to find peace in going without which is the hardest thing especially in a society such as ours that not only does not value patience or discipline but tells you that having nothing is the worst, worst, worst possible outcome rather than having the wrong thing. And I find that in sharpening my mental and psychological and spiritual capacity, that the key to living a life with an unwillingness to compromise means making peace with having nothing at all. Repositioning my relationship to sex 
so that I was not going into the bedroom in need of validation or a relationship or financial security or any of the other reasons that women are told to transact sex meant that I was willing to go to bed more nights than not by myself. It's not easy for me to sit here and tell you that that's a journey that is easy or to even say that I can advertise that it will be as exciting and pleasure-filled and fulfilling as a life that's just filled with sexual escapades and, you know, touching a stove to believe it's hot. I can't, I can't advertise that. But it's a life that mitigates pain. It's a life that has kept me from a cycle of choice and consequence that had me up against a wall for many, many years since the time that I was, let's tell the truth, a child. It's a life that has allowed me time to contemplate my body, what I want for my future, what I want in sexual partners, what I want for other women, what I want for other people. It's really, really critically, it's allotted me a freedom that typically with Ask Viv, I say, you know, we're all in this together and I'm answering questions that I am learning the lesson to at the time that I am responding to them. But this is not like that. This is a journey that I've taken, which is appropriate that this is the end of the year. It's a journey that I've taken this year that I had to really, really come to terms with that journey and to really figure some stuff out concretely before I could ever give advice because the implications of telling people to have sex or when to have sex or not to have sex, if I take seriously the idea that you all are listening, which I love you because I know you are, then I would have to take seriously that advice by really, really seeing its impact and consequences on my own life. It's no lighthearted thing to tell people to stop having sex. It's really not. And it's even harder when you don't use spiritual justification or psychological justification. I'm talking about hard data (laughs) that if you do A, then B will occur. And if you stop doing X, then Y will not occur. That's what I'm talking about. That's the conversation that we've had today is that I see that so many of you all twisted, bent over, for lack of a better word, by the circumstances and consequences of your sexual life and sexual choices. And I'm offering you an actual way out. So many of you, if you're anything like me, which I love you because you are, your sexual history, whether that be from the age of 15 or from your honeymoon on has been one of complete uninterrupted, rather unthoughtful conversation in which in order to correct for the mistakes or violations of our past, we decide to just continue on without any foresight because that's what we're taught about the things that we desire. But it's the same as those of us who one day step on a scale and realize that we've let ourselves go, so to speak, or look at our bank accounts and realize that we have run it down to negative, negative, negative zero, and really thinking maybe it's time that I make different choices. And sex, being something that is about flesh, being something that is about desire, being something that is so much about action, is something that one day you have to stop and consider and contemplate. One day you have to 
not pass so quickly by a mirror after getting out of the shower and think, what have I done to this body of mine? It doesn't matter if that conversation results in tears. Cry, baby. Sometimes you gotta cry. Sometimes you gotta cry. It doesn't matter if it results in a bit of shame because that can be corrected and it's fleeting. But the important thing is that you tell the truth, the truth about what you've been through. You tell yourself the truth and you have an honest conversation. You assess the nature of the consequences that they've brought. If that means looking at your little three-year-old child, okay? If that means taking your daily medication for whatever you've contracted, okay? We stand here in the truth of the things that we've done and the people that we are and we commit ourselves to making always better choices no matter what the reality of those consequences has been. Because as long as you are alive, you can start over. As long as you are alive, there's a chance to say that tomorrow is going to be better, more fruitful, more meaningful, more pleasurable, more fun, more exciting, safer, less compromising than yesterday. And that is what it's all about. This is not heaven. And the 72 virgins that are waiting with bottomless glasses of liqueur and beautiful physiques that are free from pain is far off yet. But in this moment, we have a chance at our own little piece of heaven that is bodily and emotionally satisfying with beautiful creatures, with bodies that are what they are. And when we embrace the possibility of pleasure with the mitigation of pain in this lifetime, we embrace the possibility at a happier life. This is episode three. We've been at this journey for two years. I myself love the new year and am even more excited at the possibility of a new decade because as always, it means new choices, new choices. Make your choices, make your choices. And may those choices lend to your freedom every time. May you, in this new year, your body become less of a mystery to you, that you learn what's going on both internally and from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, be able to say, I know who I am, so that you're able to value that, so that you're able to move through the world with all the power that that entails. I wish you that power. I wish you that freedom. I wish you admiration and tenderness and safety in the arms of every sexual partner that you encounter. I wish you more life, fullness of life, and more love. Happy New Year. Here's to another two, another 20. I'm Bianca Vivion, and if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv. I won't be neglected. I won't be denied. The pleasure of your kisses, the pleasure of your smile, I think you take for granted. Doesn't mean I won't disappear. I'm missing you, baby. I'm missing you, baby. Don't send me long memories of once upon a time. Slowly creeping on me, and then they go wrong my mind. Just let somebody. Just don't